Good morning, church. I'm going to ask you to please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. That's the text that we will be focusing on this morning. Now, I want to begin today by kind of reminding us of the sermon series that uh, we only just finished this past Lord's Day. The primary theme that was found in the book of Jude was false teaching and how appropriate it is for our current culture. False teachers are quite rampant, and the label of Christian is used to include most anyone with even a cursory mention of Christ. But this really shouldn't be surprising to any true believer, especially because the very scriptures that we claim as our sole authority both in faith, life, uh, even practice, it diligently and repeatedly warns us of false teachings and their teachers. Even the apostles themselves spent no small part of their ministries and lives combating this stuff. In fact, most of the letters that were written to the churches were done so out of a need to correct and rebuke false teachers and false teachings. But even after the apostles, the church as a whole throughout the ages made many efforts to establish a kind of orthodoxy. And they did so by way of synods, creeds, and confessions. But let's remember that this was not exclusive to the New Testament churches. Now, it actually came long before them. After all, the continuity of the church runs through the Old Covenant saints and on through us. So, none of this should be a surprise. Consider, for example, the Garden of Eden. And the serpent, with his falsehood, given to Eve. First example that we can see in the Bible. And look at all the disastrous consequences that had. After that, the floodgates of lies had been thrown open upon all of mankind. And by the time of the advent of Christ... There had arose three major religious groups within Judaism. I would say that every one of them was false teachers. The largest and most influential were the Pharisees. Everyone should be familiar with them. Followed by the even more strict, if you can believe that, Essenes. And then trailed only a number by the Sadducees. Now, these three groups, they led the Jewish nation through their teachings on the Old Covenant laws, which governed every aspect of their lives. It was, after all, a kind of theocracy. As we all know, religious leaders can often have a very profound impact on our perception and how we understand things. And we really need to look no further than even more modern examples, such as Jim Jones, David Koresh, men like that. These self-proclaimed Messiah figures, which led their cult followers to ruin, financial, physical, spiritual ruin, all through their false teachings. Now, false teaching can come in many ways, but commonly by way of ungodly culture or even self-delusion. But either way, it blinds to the truth. Now, verses 18 through 30 of the chapter we're going to be reading today Kind of give us a little bit of insight and a little of a context of where we're at. 
going to kind of go back there a little bit and see if I can't lay some groundwork for us. The rich young ruler was wrongly trusting in his own piety, similar to the Pharisees and the schemes of his time. This is the ruler that went to Jesus asking how he could get gain eternal life. And when he questioned Christ on how he might gain that eternal life, he was shown to have been violating at least the first commandment, if not the tenth as well. He loved his possessions more than the Lord God, and he would not part with them when Christ told him to do just that. And no doubt he was also covetous concerning that same wealth. Not that it would have actually gained him eternal life, though, for that itself would have been work salvation. This is not what Christ was saying. Christ was strategically demonstrating to him, and not only him, but everyone present, all these Jews, that their ideas were wrong on the most basic level. Material wealth was indeed the gauge by which many of the Jews had come to judge their being in God's good graces. But the proper understanding of grace had been largely forgotten by these ruling religious powers. And all of this lays some of the groundwork for understanding our text today. So let's go to our Bibles. And we will read Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through 34. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now let's go back to verse 31. I'm going to kind of break this up into questions and answer them. So my first question is, why did Christ take the twelve specifically to tell them this? After all, these weren't his only disciples. We know back in Luke 10, he sent out the 70 to perform miracles and go from town to town. So why them? Well, this is actually the third time that Christ foretells his coming passion. And he has frequently actually made more veiled mention of his resurrection and death to pretty much everyone around him, but never with the same detail that he actually gives the 12 disciples. And even then, they too were kept from fully understanding what exactly he was talking about. If we look at the first time Christ foretells his passion in Luke chapter 9, verse 21, it says that he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one. And then later in Luke chapter 9, verse 45, says his second foretelling was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. This was all intentional by the sovereignty of God. But the 12 disciples, being sovereignly chosen by Christ, were also later to become his apostles. And to be an apostle literally means to be sent out with the full authority of the one who is sending you. These men along with the prophets of old, were to become the foundation of the church with Christ as its chief cornerstone. And Christ, giving special attention and teaching them, was of preparing them for this later work. That's why he focused on them. Now, allow me to give you a picture, kind of what I'm 
talking about here. Maybe it'll give you a little bit more understanding if you haven't caught it yet. When we teach our children how to complete math equations, we do not immediately give them long division equations after only just learning the count to 10. No, we must further build up from their most basic understandings and concepts of mathematics. Only then will they be able to correctly grasp and be able to correctly perform complex equations. Or to give you a more biblical example, in the first epistle of Peter, he mentions newborn Christians as being on the milk of the word, as opposed to being on the meat of doctrine. And the same thing whenever we bring new members into our church, these new professing believers. We don't expect them to understand the doctrines of grace. We expect them to trust and believe in the gospel, the most basic form of the gospel. Now, many times people, though, especially adults, have ideas, concepts, notions, preconceived notions that they need to be sorted out and corrected. And in light of the role that the apostles would later be tasked with, it would be very needful for Christ to focus much of his teaching to them specifically. So let's go to our next question. Why did he set his face specifically toward Jerusalem? What was the significance of Jerusalem? Well, throughout the Old Testament, and even during the establishment of Israel as God's holy land, Jerusalem had always been given by God very special significance. God literally said in many places throughout the Old Testament that it was the city he had chosen for himself and to put his name there. It was the location of the holy temple. It was the capital city of the entire nation of Israel. It was the location of David's throne. And now it was to be the place of Christ's persecution. Now, looking back to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7, it says that though he was to endure spitting, his beard being ripped out, it's very painful, I can assure you, and his back whipped, he would set his face as flint and continue in obedience to God. This is Christ being obedient to the Father with whom he had set up a kind of covenant of redemption, a covenant within the Godhead made before time even began. Now, these prophecies that were concerning the Son of Man were written hundreds, sometimes thousands of years prior, and all of it was about to be fulfilled. And the fulfillment of these prophecies was very important to both bring about the redemption of God's elect people and also to prove that Christ was actually who he claimed to be. Now, regarding the significance of Jerusalem a little bit more, I will point out that while God had chosen it for great things, we also see in 2 Kings chapter 23 that he would cast off Jerusalem just as he had both Israel and Judah because of their sin. And we can see this uh, shortly after the Jews rejected Christ. They crucified him and he ended his earthly ministry. What happened? They were destroyed. The Roman Empire came in and they crushed them. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the city. They ravaged the nation. So after this great scattering or great diaspora of the Jews, which was all predicted, which was all foreordained, and you can read about that all throughout the Old Testament. After this, uh, 
it kind of brings us to an understanding of what exactly was going on here. That Jerusalem was kept around essentially for this role. For the role of being the place where Christ was to be spitted upon, flogged, abused, and tortured, and finally crucified. After that was fulfilled, their time was done. That covenant was ready to pass away. That was its greatest sin. Its greatest sin to be manifested was its rejection of God's Holy One, which finally led to the end of the Old Covenant and the advent of the New. But why was he delivered over to the Gentiles? Specifically then, what is significant about that? And why not be killed by the Jews themselves? Now, since prophecy is so prominent in our selected text today, I think it would be more than appropriate to look at one of the Psalms, which is very vivid in this matter, uh, written prophetically concerning the Messiah. I want to ask you now to turn to Psalm chapter 22, and I would like for you to follow along with me. And I do intend to read the whole thing. I know it's kind of long, but I think it's needful because of everything that our selected text is speaking on today. As I read, please follow along. And see if there's anything that you recognize in this text. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of a congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. I know that's pretty long, but it's very relevant today. This is just one of the many prophecies that were given concerning the Messiah. We see it all throughout Isaiah. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in Malachi. We see it all over the Old Testament. But I think this is one of the most vivid. It's a vivid prophecy of what exactly would befall the coming seed that was promised to Eve. That's how far back this goes. Immediately after the fall of man, a promise was given. And the promise was that his heel would be bruised while he would crush the head of the serpent. And his heel was certainly to be bruised. The same seed that was promised to Abraham was the seed that was promised to Eve. And the same holy one spoken of frequently throughout the prophets is that same seed as well. Now, Psalm 22 mentions Christ being despised by his own people, rejected and abused by them. And even mentions his surrounding by dogs, which is a term that was frequently given to those who were not Jews. It's kind of racism. In this case, the Roman Gentiles. And this is what verse 32 is talking about. But while the Jews were responsible for his death, they did not actually commit the act of killing him. That was actually left to the Romans. Now, at this time, under the iron foot of Roman rule, the Jews were quite limited to who they could kill. Yet, with their determination to see Jesus killed, they would illegally try him under cover of darkness at nighttime, where they would condemn him to the defilement of the filthy hands of heathen Gentiles. That's how they would have viewed this. Okay, to be touched by a Gentile was to be defiled. So this humiliation that Christ was to endure was nonstop. Not only would, be he be, would he be harmed by his own countrymen, but after them he would receive further beatings by the Romans. And not only beatings, but piercings. Now all of this was to further amplify his sufferings. Not only was Christ to endure the most extreme of physical pains, but also to drink the entirety of God's holy wrath. The wrath which was reserved for his sheep was totally taken upon himself at the cross. So now all they know is grace. If that doesn't sound familiar, because it's one of our songs that we sing, there's a lot of truth in that. And no one could have done what Christ did. 
The pain, the stress, the humiliation and wrath that was due unto us was completely and totally taken by Christ Jesus. His persecution and death were payment for the sins of all of his elect. And no animal could have ever did what he did. No animal was ever capable of removing the sin from them, that stain that was given to us that we have from birth. Now, everything that transpired up until this point and even afterwards concerning Jesus' life, his ministry, his persecution, his death, his resurrection, all of it was foreordained. Nothing was outside of his control at all. This was all spoken about. Now, going a little further here, why did he make mention of his resurrection? Well, if we look back to the prophecy given in Psalm 22, you'll see in the beginning, pretty much the entire first half, it begins by speaking with his afflictions. But then in the latter half, it tells of his victory and answered prayer. Usually, laments in the Old Testament are followed closely by praise. And this is that praise. That he who was to have his heel bruised by the serpent would simultaneously crush the head of that serpent, death being utterly and totally defeated and the curse completely reversed. Now, the fact that Jesus was dead for three days was proof positive to the unbelieving Jews that he was actually dead. They had tradition at that time that it would take three days before they would actually verify someone to be dead. Any less than that, and they pretty much just said they were asleep. But because uh, Christ himself prophesied that just as Jonah was buried in the belly of the whale for three days, so would the Son of Man be in the earth. But his resurrection also proves, serves to prove what we will attain. As he died a physical death, he then rose with a body that was most glorified. And this, too, is what we will inherit. Though our body may die and return to the earth and see corruption, at the final judgment, there is absolutely no chance of condemnation for those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. His righteousness has been fully imputed to you, and when you stand before that great white throne, you will be rewarded with a body like Christ. He has secured it and much more for all of his children. Now, why was this hidden from the disciples? This is something that actually perplexed me. I didn't fully understand why would he hide this from them. Well, the gospel message is simple. Chapter 1, paragraph 7 of the Second London Baptist Confession mentions how the scriptures are so clearly laid out that even the unlearned and novice can understand them. But in the fifth paragraph of that same chapter, it states that our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, that's of the scriptures, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And this is what we are seeing here with the twelve chosen disciples of Christ. These men were Jews who were taught the Old Testament their whole lives. Everything they did revolved around the Old Covenant laws that was given by Moses and the prophets. 
And in their specific time, the ruling religious parties were largely teaching of a kind of warlike political messiah. And they were teaching that he would come with a, a sword and literally crush their enemies. Especially these Roman dogs who currently occupy their lands. And this idea of a warlord messiah became the predominant image that the vast majority of the Jews had formed in their minds. But Jesus did not come in this manner. No, he came as a servant, a suffering servant at that. He was lowly, he was humble, he was of no repute. There was nothing beautiful or spectacular about him. And his foretelling of his persecution, execution, and resurrection afterward would have been very confusing to not only these men, but every Jew. He wasn't at all what they were expecting. And upon Jesus' third time foretelling his death, the disciples were noticeably perplexed, confused. They did not understand at all what Christ was talking about, more than likely because of their being raised in a Jewish culture that was ruled by a council called the Sanhedrin, which was a large council of ruling elders, uh, consisting mostly of the Pharisees, but also included some of the Essenes and uh, Sadducees. So it would be understandable that though they had been with Christ since the beginning of his ministry, uh, the fact that they were raised in this culture kind of gave them these preconceived notions concerning the Messiah and his work. And so strong were these notions that Mark's gospel actually tells us that they were very upset upon hearing about his death, upset and confused. And Christ doesn't go any further to elaborate for them, thus leaving the truth of it largely hidden from them. But Christ did not leave the understanding hidden from them forever. In Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection and just before his ascension, Christ is seen sovereignly opening their minds to understand the prophecies. It literally says this. Now, in our own lives, God and his sovereignty gives us only so much information or help that we must further rely on him and his word alone. We can gain absolutely no security through carnal methods. The disciples had placed all of their hope in the false teaching they had been given their whole lives, which distorted their perception to expect something different than the actual Christ that was standing just before them. We see this in Luke chapter 9, verses 54 through 55, when Jesus is asking or visiting a Samaritan village, and he's rejected by them. The disciples immediately ask him whether they should call down fire upon the village to consume and destroy them. But Jesus sharply rebukes this type of thinking. Instead, his ministry was to come and redeem, not judge and destroy. That occurs at final judgment. But we see this again in Matthew chapter 16, when Christ mentions his coming death. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus rebuked him loudly and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, the disciples were not viewing Christ in the right manner. They wanted to deny him the cross, yet confess him as Christ. But if you deny the cross, you deny Christ. You can't have one without the other. 
Now, I want to point out that uh, these ruling elders that were spreading these false teachings, they were more than likely not the originators of it. But regardless, the deceived can become the deceiver if they continue teaching that deception. And this brings me to an application. Now, in our day, there are many people who are spreading and teaching many heretical and blasphemous things. And we as a church have a duty to stand firmly against it. But not only the church, also the family sphere. The elders of our church have a duty to protect it from such false teachings and error. And this is why they do not let just anyone come up here and preach or teach. Because they know what could happen if such falsehood was allowed to infiltrate and fester. Because deception is like a cancer. This is also why they faithfully continue to teach and preach what they do and the way they do. Even the words I have spoken to you today should be scrutinized, held against the word of God. They must be tested against the word of God because that is our final authority. I'm a man, I am fallible, and I pray that anything that I have said today, whether it be uh, untrue, I pray that it goes in one ear and out the other. But while the watchers of the congregation itself, while we do have them, there's also another sphere of influence that must be cared for. I mentioned it already, the family sphere. I'm specifically speaking to the fathers and more generally the men of the church. Men, God has assigned the role of headship to you. You are to be the protectors and defenders of those who are in your charge. I'm, <coughs> excuse me. And not just in a, a kind of physical sense. I'm speaking in a spiritual manner here. Okay, this is not a macho thing. But this is why we're always pushing for people to read their Bible and to further develop their understanding of doctrine. Not for any kind of sense of accomplishment, but for a kind of preparedness to guard against that which would deceive you and lead you astray. Not only you, but your families, the ones who are under you. And everyone must be diligent in their study. The Jews had come to rely way too heavily on their religious leaders. Their teachers and influencers had allowed false teachings to creep into their church. Salvation by works or piety, uh, a fraudulent view of the Messiah. These were the heresies of the time which caused the Jews to actually crucify Christ. Now, these things still exist in many of professing churches today. So I think this is why we should remember this one last thing. False teachings can be very loud or very quiet. It can come rushing in like a bull in the proverbial china shop. Or it can slowly infiltrate and creep in unaware until it has become so deeply rooted that the thing must be painfully cut out. I implore you, saints, to keep on guard and be ever watchful. And here's another way that we can do this. We can engage in our church's Bible studies. We can come to the growth groups. We can come to Sunday school. We can meditate on the word. We can discuss doctrine. We can hone and sharpen our mind on that stone that the builders refused. 
we should immerse ourselves in the word of God. That way, if something comes into the church, you can see it. It's going to be readily noticeable. Not that we're hunting for it, but we keep an eye out. We keep a watchful eye. We be active. That's what I'm calling us to do today. Now, I, I want to close today with a prayer that is from the um, little book called Valley of Vision by the Puritans. So I ask you all, uh, there's nothing to read on the screen, but if you would, just bow your heads, and we're going to use that as our prayer. O God of my exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. Far greater the joy when their Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Show me herein the proof that his vicarious offering is accepted, that the claims of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is shivered, that his wrongful throne is leveled. Give me the assurance that in Christ I died, in him I rose. In his life I live, and his victory I triumph, and his ascension I shall be glorified. Adorable Redeemer, thou who wast lifted up on a cross art ascended to the highest heaven. Thou who as man of sorrows wast crowned with thorns art now as Lord of life wreathed with glory. Once no shame more deep than mine, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel, now no exaltation more high. No life more glorious, no advocate more effective. Thou art in the triumph car, leading captive thine enemies behind thee. What more could be done than thou hast done? Thy death is my life, thy resurrection my peace, thy ascension my hope, and thy prayers my comfort.